This Week in Sparkling Water. My name is Joachim Eriksson and I'm the host of This Week in Sparkling Water. I am happy about this because I have a few things that I've thought of this week that aren't work-related because I feel like work's been taking over my whole life and the podcast has been me just talking about work. So the first thing that I'm sitting here thinking about is like how I had this dream I woke up from this dream and in the dream I'm like in Beijing and I'm walking around and it's like my day off and I I need to buy a watch. So I go into this watch store and um there's this thing in China that's like a little bit different where I think it's probably financially true that even in America sometimes a store isn't really making money. People just like having a store. And maybe you're just selling stuff. Maybe it's just breaking even, but you're cool with that because it's kind of like you want to show your products and you really make money on the internet. Or maybe you're a rich person and you just kind of like the project of having a little trinket store or different reasons why a store might not be profitable. But in China, it's a little bit like it's kind of common for stores to be, to have a corner, like a quarter of the store is usually can commonly be like a bunch of chairs around a tea table and a tea table is kind of like like a tea ceremony table is kind of like um usually like a really ornate weird tree stump with all these flattened surfaces where you can put a little teacup and a space in the middle with like a drain so you can have a glass teapot and then you put green tea in it and then you rinse everything all over the table. So you just rinse it onto the table, but it drains into like a little grate in the table that's connected to a drain in the floor. So you have this weird like complicated tree stump with all these branches sticking out, but the middle of it is like a flat area with a drain. Very strange object. And then people sit around it and they hang out. So sometimes you walk into a store in China and it's not – and it, it, as you f- think about it, you figure out that this store is making no money. It's just like some rich person likes to hang out in this store with his friends. And then it's just nice to have a store. It's like you can bring your buds and you can sit around and you drink tea and you hang out. And maybe later, if it's the evening, maybe you, you have a shot of liquor. But but it's a lot of afternoon stuff and it's a lot of tea. And maybe you have a shop attendant that works for you, but maybe she's only there half of the time. But if you're there, then that's cool. And if someone comes in and wants to buy something, then then that's cool too. And you can do be the store attendant and... And it's not hard work. It's mostly like hanging out because maybe your job is something that you you sell stuff and you're mostly just on your phone and you do your job on your phone so you like hang out. And it's like this kind of different setup that you don't really see. Like you'd never see this in Sweden. In Sweden, everything is so formalized. Um, yeah, I don't know. You'd never see any of that in Sweden. But But so in China, you'll see a little antique shop or a furniture store or something and and it's really just like uh, people hang out in there. But so I had this dream that I walk into a watch store and I'm browsing all these watches because in reality I did lose my watch and I, I need a watch and I actually bought a watch on the internet yesterday. But so in the dream I'm looking at all these watches and they have some cool ones. And then I look 
look around and there's like four guys sitting in the corner and what happened in the dream is that I like became friends with them and they were just four age appropriate like my age cool guys and I'm you know we're talking about shit and and I just became friends with them and it was like this long dream where I was like so excited to have these like new friends and then I woke up and I was like I just sort of faded into reality. But then later in the day, I just thought of it for a second. And that's when like this pang of sadness hit me where I was like, oh, I was so happy to have some new friends, but it was just a dream. And God, that's so fucking sad, you know? God, that's a that's a lonely man's, such a pang of loneliness and sadness where I just, and then my first thought is like, oh, I wish I was like back in China and just living in China where I could have experiences like that, where there's like this openness and I can just walk up to people and people think I'm a little bit interesting and we can talk and be friends. And and um, it, it just like make friends and feel con- and like to just meet people that are totally different and and just be friends. But then I fall back one more step. And I really take a sober look at what I'm actually thinking. And I realize that it's all made up. Like, I never had, like, I lived in China for 10 years and I barely made any friends. I mean, it's not completely true. There are some things that happened where I made friends with people just randomly. And there is an openness. But but I never really broke through. I don't know. Some Something about it was a little bit old world where... You know, I was thinking about how in the old world, you would lose touch with people so easily, and it was so natural to lose touch. And there wasn't this, like in the, in the with Facebook and the internet now, you never lose touch with anyone, and that means that you always live with this weird feeling of guilt, like you should maintain all these relationships, where I feel like in the past there was a simpler more poetic sadness of losing touch because losing touch is clean you didn't do anything wrong you just lost touch and you can't stay i mean you probably felt the same you probably felt like damn i should have written down her fucking postal address or some shit but but i don't know there's something so frustrating about having everyone you've ever met in a in a Facebook friend list and just feeling so overwhelmed by how you can't maintain 600 relationships. So you just sort of like go about your day and you're lonely, even though you've met 600 people and you have all their names in a list in the cloud. But there's something like, there's something in my experience in China where it's a different internet. So I never, like I remember this one time living in Beijing I, me and Bjorn and Aaron and everyone, we were studying at BFSU and and um, Ingrid just sort of came and hung out and just, and everyone was living in the dorms on campus, but I just got an apartment off campus. I just got a little two bedroom kind of cheap and it was like all wood paneling and really shitty, but I liked it and it was big and nice. And Ingrid came and, and stayed in one of the bedrooms for six months. And then once in the elevator, I just um, started talking to this guy, and he looked like an 11-year-old. He looked like a child, but he had a, a mustache. And he was so strange and stupid looking, but 
I started talking to him. He was so clearly a genius. And then I invited him to poker because we like played poker in my apartment. And he beat us so bad at poker. And I remember asking him first time I met him what he did for a living. And he was like, he said this thing. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? And I took out my phone and I looked it up. And it's like, he was like future commodities. Because he was a futures trader. <laughs> he traded futures. Which is like future contracts, you know, where you like leverage the price of commodities like cotton or frozen orange juice concentrate or steel or, you know, steel coils or whatever. All of that stuff. And I was like, so complicated for this 11-year-old to be trading these complicated financial products. But he wasn't 11. He was like 25. And I don't know, man. I just... I just wish I was still friends with guys like that guy. <clears throat> also, I don't know. I just I just wish I had like four friends that were like really cool looking dudes. Maybe I do, you know. Maybe I have four friends that are cool looking dudes, but but I live in some sort of disconnected dream world where I like fantasize about everything and I want everything to be a little bit different or something. There's something weird and like a little bit sad about it all where I just don't, I'm just not happy with what I have. You know, but that feeling, that feeling of like thinking back on something and, and somehow at the same time being, feeling like I had something in the past and then being realistic for a second and realizing that both, both I didn't have it and it would be impossible for me to have it and I had it and every all of those things are true at the same time. It reminds me of this other thing where like, Recently, I've been thinking a lot about how, like, I don't drink alcohol. And I work in this bar with a fancy cocktail program. And I've been thinking about how when I was drinking, I never went to nice cocktail lounges. Like, I, I had a little bit of an experience where I would be, I was into whiskey for a while. And I'd go to fancy whiskey bars and, and they'd, the bartender would be like, this is the good one this week, or I'd get a flight of whiskeys and I'd try different things and I'd find it real smooth and delicious. And, you know, I had some good whiskey in my day and, and I had some good sake and I had a million glasses of good wine. But cocktails, it's like a different thing because cocktails, you can't drink it at the house. It takes a mixologist. Like there's something about textures and balances and and a freshly made perfectly handcrafted cocktail that wasn't batched in advance and that wasn't canned by a corporation it was made in front of you by a, by a mixologist like there's something special about that and like they hit it with egg white and it gets a dry shake and then a wet shake meaning that first you shake it with egg white without ice so it gets frothy and then you throw ice in there and shake it again with ice so you get like cold stiff froth and like a good bartender, an amazing bartender will play around with all those textures and stiffnesses of froth and you get like this fucking froth and creaminess hit it with some almond milk and egg white, maybe almond milk and dairy, some dairy product cream or something. Do so you get like these creaminesses and then it's like different than all the dessert creaminess because it's bitter and tangy and tart and sharp, and it tastes like alcohol, and it's like a good whiskey sour, like, I started drinking when the internet, when I didn't even know how to use the internet properly, like, I remember being 
14, and me and my buddy Sebastian would get someone to buy us, not 14, a little bit older, but young and living in Sweden, like a teenager. And me and my buddy Sebastian, we would somehow get bottles of black velvet, which was the cheapest whiskey you could get at Systembolaget in Sweden, which is the only place you can buy liquor in Sweden is a government store called The System Company. <laughs> I love translating Systembolaget. It's so fucking funny because it's just so Kafka-esque. The system company, they would sell you a bottle of black velvet for about 180 kroner, which is about $20. Um, the point is that I was young, but I knew about that I wanted to try good things, and I'd heard of things, and I'd heard of a whiskey sour. I'd heard of it. Those two words, I'd heard of them. And I spoke enough English to know what sour meant. And so I remember trying to make a cocktail, but not being smart enough to Google it. Because, I, I mean, I can't be like, the, Go the Google didn't exist in 2003, because it did. It did exist in 2003. I just didn't Google it. So what I drank was, I would take whiskey, and I would just squeeze lemon into it. And I'd be like, that's a whiskey sour. And that's a terrible thing to drink. Like, that's just, you made you made whiskey really sour. Like you can drink it. It's not like undrinkable or anything if you're trying to get wasted, but it barely makes the whiskey, like, I, I, I don't know that it's anything, just whiskey with fucking, I mean, at least it was fresh. Like at least I would take a real lemon and squeeze it in there, but it wasn't real, you know? It wasn't a cocktail. That's not a whiskey sour. A whiskey sour is made with egg whites. And it's served up, and it's cold, and it's frothy, and it's like this its like this perfectly textured, beautiful, classic, very simple, but still not something you can just, as a 17-year-old Swedish kid, understand from just hearing the two words. You don't know about a shaker and egg whites, you know? But so, I, I've been thinking about it recently, and I've been thinking about how sad it is that I never had experiences with cocktails like I never I gave up drinking without ever having had all those wonderful interesting flavors and then the thing the thing about it that's similar to the watch store dream or whatever is that when I thought about it for one more second I realized that it's like there's a built-in contradiction there like the reason I, I was thinking about it in terms of like oh I wish I I had like seized the day more and gone to cocktail lounges, but it's not that I was a procrastinator and lazy that made me not go to cocktail lounges. It's because I'm a raging fucking alcoholic and raging alcoholics don't have those cool experiences where you go with like one friend and you want to catch up. So you go to a nice cocktail lounge and you like have a really, really well-crafted cocktail and then a second one and then you're done. And you like had an incredibly delicious, interesting taste experience where some mixologist really like matched you, describe a little bit what you like and who you are and they look into your soul and they tell you what you're going to like and they serve it to you and you really like it and it's minty and chocolatey and creamy and desserty or it's like just interesting and dry and bright or it's just some flavor profile that you've never even had, you know, like an Amaro cocktail, you know? Something with an absinthe, absinthe rinse, or just like a pisco sour, perfectly made. And you cannot have those experiences if you're an alcoholic, because that will never sound good to you. Having 
meeting a friend that you haven't met for a long time that you love and you want to catch up and you just want to sit next to each other up at the bar top for for like three hours and just have two cocktails slowly and they're delicious and they're expensive, that's never going to be your thing if you're a raging alcoholic because that's expensive and that, that doesn't get you shit-faced. So it's like there's this weird <laughs> there's this weird contradiction in it where like it's not some fluke that I never went to a fancy cocktail lounge. It's because of who I am. It's like it's not that I just forgot. I was thinking about it like, oh, I wish I would have remembered, like for my 15 years of drinking, I wish I would have remembered to maybe check in and go and go to a nice fancy mixologist spot, you know, where everything is like frosted glass and backlit and exposed stonework, where everything is like really beautiful interior decorating and everything smells real nice and all the people are really beautiful and all the girls have a little bit of exposed side boob. Like, I wish I would have gone to one of those places, you know, where they give you cool glassware. But it's like, bro, I, <laughs> it's not that I forgot to go. It's that me and Cammy would go to the corner store and get a bottle of Smirnoff and then he'd crack the top off and then put the top on and then put the cap of the whiskey vodka bottle on the ground and stomp it and be like, look, there's no top to this bottle, so we have to finish the bottle right now. And then we'd finish like a full bottle of hard liquor standing right there with no chaser. Because we're both alcoholics. It's not that we... <laughs> uh, it's not that we forgot. Also, I was in cocktail lounges, but I never paid attention because I just wanted to get wasted. Like, sure, when there were no other options, I ended up in... Like, it's not true that I never went to cocktail lounges, because I did. But it's just like, I never... I never... It was never my first choice, and I was never, you know? Ugh, so stupid. <laughs> it's so funny to me how, like, I live in this dream world where, like, I think I made this... I think I I was so close to being having a good experience, but I fucked it all up somehow. But the truth is that everything is a gray area, and I've had lots of good experiences. And the experiences I didn't have, I was like destined to not have them. And it's so silly to just be resent resent myself. I don't know. There's also this other experience that I thought of recently that is somehow maps on perfectly to what i just said about what we the experiences we have or not have or destined to have like i i think i have um i think i've referred to this previously on the podcast because it's such a weird i don't it, it's not until very recently that it's landed with me how weird this is but like <laughs> there's this one thing there's this thing that happened to me once where Look, I've, like, basically never had a one-night stand. Pretty much never. There's some things where it's like, eh. But, oh, pretty much never. But so, um, because of many reasons. Because I'm just not cool enough for it. Because of all the things I'm saying. It's because of who I am. Like, I think that I have this thing where I, that sounds so cool to me and I wish I had it, but it's, I never had it because of who I am. And also, I had it probably a couple of times. You know, both things are true at the same time. But so there's this one experience where 
I remember being on WeChat and being on the part of the app where WeChat is just the biggest um, app for chatting, for talking to people. It's like what every business transaction in China, they don't have email. They just do, they just do WeChat. And then also the 17-year-olds talk to each other on WeChat. And then also WeChat is just everything, the social media platform for everything in China. But so it has this one feature, which is basically like people nearby, and you tap it and you can see who's nearby. And then you can filter and be like, I want to see women who, who are nearby. And then people use it for dating. And you can just message women who are nearby. So I would like message women who are nearby. This is basically like before dating apps. All the way back, you know. And then um, I remember talking to this one girl on there. And she was, I was like, you want to go on a, I don't know what we called it, but I was like, you want to go on a date or something? And she's like, yeah, sure, meet me, come over here. Come over here and we'll go on a date. And so she gives me some coordinates or some shit and I show up on this like dusty sidewalk in the outskirts of Beijing. And then, okay, so let me give you some, let me just mention a little bit of background before, I don't know what chronology to tell this in, but like, there's this weird thing in China where, it's a it's a it's a sexist sort of misogynist trope or habit or cultural quirk or whatever you want to call it. But there's this thing where in China, no people never have, straight couples never have sex unless the girl always showers right before sex. Now look, there's reasons for showering right before sex, and showering right before sex is really nice. And if you shower right before sex, that kind of opens up some more options to do more stuff that would have been gross if you didn't shower right before sex. Or maybe some of that is a little bit up to your subjective personal opinions, you know. But I think most people would agree that it's kind of nice to shower right before sex. The weird, specifically Chinese thing about it is that it's super gendered, where it's like women are 100% expected to shower right before sex, and men are not, and men have absolutely zero um, sense of personal hygiene. Chinese men have very poor sense of personal hygiene and are not very considerate. I mean, this is super generational, and I think I don't really know about younger Chinese people, but I assume that Chinese people that are 10 years younger than me are probably way savvier. But Chinese dudes my age were not very savvy when they were 25 and sexually active or whatever. And so if we are going to be completely straight here, it's like maybe they have like slightly smaller dicks and maybe they have an enormous amount of or like an unfortunate amount of pubic hair that they don't deal with at all. Okay, so super crass. I hate that I'm talking about this, but I said that out loud and now we need to move on from it. But so that's like a cultural quirk that you need to know about to understand this story. But so I'm in Beijing, right? And I end up on this sidewalk where this girl told me to meet her at this hotel or whatever so that we can go on a date. So I'm assuming that I'm going to pick her up. So I go in the lobby and I'm like, yeah, so I'm in the lobby. And I'm waiting for her to come down so we can go on a date. And then she's like, yeah, come up. This is my room number. So I'm like, okay, so I guess I'm getting her. I guess this is going to be one of those things where I like really have to hold the door for this woman because she wants, she won't even come down. She needs me to like come up to get her so we can go out and go on a date and have dinner or whatever. And so I go up to her room, and I am, like, a little bit offended. First of all, she's nice, and she's, like, really funny, and we 
had talked about how we like the same comedies. There's this one show called Ai Qing Gong Yu, which means like love apartment, which is basically a ripoff of the show Friends, but it's Chinese and they kind of did it all good. And there's something so fun about, like we both liked this show is what we've been talking about. And there's something so fun about shows like that, which are when they rip off a Western thing and it's, and one, I mean, you have this in the West too, where if you watch television shows in America, the houses that people live in are so different than the average house that real people, the houses that people, average people live in. Where like the houses of the people on TV are so fancy and nice and big. And they're all like, if you really had a real estate and look at the TV show and be like, so what would this house cost? All the houses on all of these TV shows are $10 million houses. And the plot is like about some middle class, lower middle class person. But it's just nice for the story to be set in a nice place. So a lot of like sitcoms and stuff. Like Friends was in a... The economics, the economic situation of all the characters in Friends was always really vague because they seemed to spend a lot of time with each other and they had these incredible apartments <laughs> and they got to live across the hallway from each other, which has seemed so hard to swing in reality, you know? But so in the Chinese version, it's like just this incredibly clean, huge, colorful, perfectly decorated apartment. And in China, it is not – no one lives like that. Like, not even rich people really live like that. Even rich people live in fucking cold apartments in China. But anyway, moving on from that show, the, <laughs> so this girl makes me go up to the hotel room to get her. And I walk into the hotel room, and she's nice and everything. But I'm kind of offended because she's not ready. And we had, like, decided on a time. And now it's, like, 25 minutes after this time, and she's still not ready. Like, she's just coming out of the shower, and she's wearing, like, a robe. She's wearing, like, a thick, fancy, frothy robe. And I get a little bit nervous because the robe means that she's a little bit naked. But, like, I'm also, like, a little bit offended that she's not ready. It just feels like... We're going to rub up against some because I'd had all these experiences of wanting to date Chinese girls, but having it be really hard how our our perceptions of gender is really different. Like where I'm really shooting for some sort of like equality in good and bad where like, I don't know, I was having all these experiences where women wanted me to pay for everything and women were just so deferential and I just needed someone to have a little bit of personality and be a little bit funny and be a little bit of their own thing and not just be like a fucking receptacle. Like, it's just so boring. Like, I need, I just needed a per, like a real person, like an equal. I wanted to date some, I wanted to go on a date with someone who acted like an equal and all of that unequalness goes hand in hand with how men have to like do a bunch more for women than they do for men in some sort of initial courting stage. And then in the relationship, the woman has to do everything. And like, I wasn't interested in any, any of that. I just wanted like to go on some dates and have interesting conversations and like be in situations where it's like equal. But so 
I go into this hotel room and it's like a huge hotel room. It's a double, like two big beds. So she's like getting ready and like putting on makeup. She's wearing a robe and she just took a shower and I sit down on the bed and I'm a little bit nervous because she's like really pretty and and she has huge tits, dude. She had huge tits. And I got the remote and I'm going through different shows and I'm I'm feeling a little bit like like my Chinese is pretty good at this point. She doesn't speak a lick of English and and there are some miscommunications, but we're talking about TV and we're having a pretty good conversation and stuff. And then we hang out for about 30 minutes and we watch TV and she gets ready and she sits on that one bed and I sit on the other bed and and then we, I just remember I was like going around, we left and went around outside and we had food and we just like walked around a lot and looked in stores. And then we met up with one of her friends and it was just like a very good day of just like openness and just walking around. There was this like incredible sense of freedom to it where like there was no plan and no format. And in the evening, we just ended up in this bar with some of my friends. And then one of my ex-girlfriends, this girl Crystal showed up and then she like, asked me like so how do you know this girl and i was just like i just met her and then she was like oh you just met on the app like you guys are on a oh you guys are doing a thing and then i was like yeah maybe this is kind of a date and stuff and i never kissed a girl or nothing and she like left to her hometown the next morning and then it wasn't until like probably more than 10 years later that i realized that when i walked into that hotel room she like wanted to have sex with me right away like that was the the Chinese expectation there is that when you've just when you have just taken a shower and you're wearing a robe, it's not like a suggestion. It's just like a completely clear message. Because I think even in a Western context, it's like a little bit of a. It's a. It's definitely a, a suggestion to be like you meet someone for the first time and you're wearing a robe in a hotel. Like I think if I had been savvier, I just didn't get it. Honestly, I just didn't get it. And then I, the girl was really nice and we, we like were talking and she, she left the next morning and, and we were talking afterwards on the app. And I remember telling her like, oh, you know, I, you were really nice yesterday and you're so pretty and I really wish I would have kissed you. And she t- messaged me back and she was like, yeah, I wish you would have kissed me too. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> And it's like pretty much, I think in my entire life, that interaction might have been, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I don't think it's really landed with me until I really thought about it recently, how much it was like, she really wanted one specific thing and I absolutely didn't get it to this hilarious degree. Like so stupid. <laughs> so then it's easy for me 15 years later to be a little bit lonely and be like, God damn it, I wish I wish some girl would just invite me over to her hotel room and she's in a robe or whatever. But it's also like, you know, we get the things we get for because of who we are and we can't change who we are and we probably got a bunch of stuff and we probably didn't get nothing because of who we are and everything is true at the same time. And I'm just, I'm living in this weird nostalgic sense of feeling like I wasted a lot of opportunities, but really it's probably just, I don't know, there's some shimmer to everything because of 
time and distance, but really, like, how crazy is that thing, though, that, like, <laughs> some Chinese girl who just wanted to, like, bone a foreigner, and she just was like, I don't know. I'm certain that there was, like, some language thing where she, if I just understood her, if I, my Chinese had been better, I'm sure. What's that sound? Ugh, terrifying. Some noise outside. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I thought that was so funny to think back on. Like, just completely different. Like, it wasn't, like, it wasn't like the next day I understood that she wanted to bone the whole time. It it was like, when I thought about it 15 years later, when I knew about this weird shower cultural quirk that I really, I don't know. I didn't realize until very recently what that actually was. Anyway, maybe we should drink a water. So this time we're just doing, um, you know, tropical Asian, uh, tropical Asian fruity uh, sparkling waters. So the first one here is called Sway, Sway Immunity, and it's mango flavored. Sway, it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool it's got this nice green to orange gradient background. Sway is written in a nice bold font. It's a good graphic profile. This is a nice looking can. Mango. Ooh, that smells like mango and, oh, it smells like good mango. And then right in the background, there's a whisper of something disgusting that I can't put my finger on. What is that? Oh, okay, I'm going to have to try it with my mouth, not just my nose, to figure out what the disgusting thing is. Mmm. The disgusting thing I was sensing is what's called artificial sweetener. That's so bad. That's so undrinkable. 160 milligrams of caffeine. I've been sleeping kind of bad. It's 6 p.m. right now, so I should not have too much caffeine, that's for sure. But at the same time, I want to feel something. So I want to have little, a little bit. I want to have little as a treat. Cat can have a little salami, comma, as a treat. Tastes so bad, but I know it's caffeinated, so I want it in my body. Here's another thing I've been thinking back on with a sense of nostalgia, because it's such a strong, big part of my experience in life, but I never experienced it anymore. It's like... If we're being honest right now, and I'm going to be honest, I used to do, I sometimes I used to experiment a little bit with drugs. Some people would give me drugs and I'd do drugs. And then wh when you do drugs, it's illegal. And let me think about why. I was going to say you end up doing them at home. And I was thinking about why do you end up doing them at home? It's like multiple things. It's like when you're on drugs, you can feel a little bit sensitive and weird. So you want to be at home because it's safe. And also it's illegal. So you don't want to be caught on the sidewalk being all fucked up and weird and people look at you and they're like, oh, you're on drugs and then you get arrested. So there are many things that make it so that you end up doing drugs at home. And then when you do serious psychoactive drugs on your own couch in your own home, there's this very specific, extremely strange experience where... You're in this place where you've lived for a long time and you're extremely familiar with it. And then as your brain starts fucking getting microwaved by a psychoactive drug, you find yourself in a completely new world. 
Now, this is Narnia quality to it, where you walk through the closet of your own house and you end up in this dream landscape. Now, you're still at your house. And for people who haven't done drugs, I think one thing that when drugs are portrayed in art and media, it's one thing that gets exaggerated. It's like the 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 angle where they media like like movies and TV like to portray drug use as if you get completely cut off from reality. And that's basically never true. Like you, it's true in one percent of the cases. But ninety-nine percent of the time when you're doing drugs, you're still in reality, but you're in a warped version of reality. It's not like you're in some fucking new, unrecognizable place where, where it's not the same things. It's like, there's still a coffee table in front of you. It's just a fucked up crazy thing now. But so there's this super strange thing when you're like, you, you're in your own house and you get really fucked up. And then when you stop being fucked up, you come back to your own house. And there's this like, you come back to yourself. Like there's one thing that everyone that is well-treaded ground. It's like, that people talk about a lot with psychoactive drugs where like when you have a really strong psychedelic experience, your ego gets deconstructed. And then when you come down, you have to like sort of reassemble your ego and become yourself again. But what people don't talk about is you kind of have to have the same thing with your house where like suddenly you're, you're on the couch and you look and you're like, damn, the whole time it was my coffee table right there. And I don't know, there's this very specific experience that's so strange. And one common occurrence also is that you, you're you in your own house and you get really fucked up and you have some crazy, you're on a crazy wavelength and you're seeing things and you're thinking things and you are things and it's all crazy, but you're at your house and then you accidentally break something because you're fucked up. So you like knock something over you know, a flower vase, your computer, you know, some plumbing, a kitchen appliance, you set fire to something, something breaks. And in the moment, you're fucked up so you don't give a shit. And then there's this very specific experience of coming back to your house and like realizing that you've trashed your own house. And then there's this like question posed to you, like, do you care that you just fucked up your own house? And it's a real 50-50 most of the time, like where you don't really, like, was it worth it? And it's, the answer is never completely clear. Like rarely do you feel like, oh, that wasn't worth it at all. Because like you had an experience and like you did it on purpose. Like you did drugs on purpose because you wanted to fucking experience something. So you you were there and you had a crazy thing happen and now you're like, now there's trash all over your house. Because, like, you, let's just say you had people over, you know? You had people over for a little bit of party favors, and now your your house is trashed. And now it can be put back together, but, like, I don't know. It, it used to be such a common occurrence for me, and I used to find it so vexing. It used to be, like... The biggest part of the, the most the thing in my whole week that made the biggest impression on me was like the weird experience of coming down down off of drugs after having done drugs in my own house and being like my house was so alien to me and now it's 
familiar to me again, but my house is a little bit different now, and it feels a little bit different, and I feel a little bit different. Man, that used to be such a big part of my life, that that come down in my house, and I haven't experienced that for like so many years. And I'm a little bit nostalgic about it. If I'm being honest with you, I'm a little bit nostalgic. Like I miss it. I miss the escapism of it. Because that is true escapism. Like escapism is that you feel a certain way and you don't want to feel it. So you shock the system in some way that makes you escape your normal situation and feeling. And then... When the escapism is over, you come back to your normal feeling. And just for a moment, even though your normal feeling isn't that great, and even though you're really anxious or really depressed, and even though you hate yourself, and everything is like that Otessa Mosfe book, my year of rest and relaxation, everything is like that, but you still kind of hate it. You you hate it, but but it, at least you did good escapism. So now you're back to normal, and now for a moment, your normal life feels you're okay with it for a little bit because you like how when you go on vacation and you come back from vacation, right in the beginning there, it just feels really good to be home again because you have all your stuff and it's familiar, and you haven't seen your stuff in a way, and you're just happy to. S- you're just happy to see your stuff again. You know, a few days ago, I was talking to Amanda Anderson, the most wholesome person in the whole universe. I love her so fucking much, my coworker. And um, she was, it was Monday. She was asking me what I was going to do on my day off. And I hadn't thought about it yet, more than that I hadn't made any plans. And so my answer was this like really dark, depressing thing that I always which is just something I knee-jerk... Knee-jerk me will say dark and depressing things sometimes. And then when I say it to wholesome, positive people like Amanda Anderson, who kind of has elf energy, like Will Ferrell or whatever the guy is in that movie Elf, she's a little bit like that guy in a way. Like she can summon up that sort of endless well spring of positive energy. Like that makes it sound like she's one-dimensional and she's not because she's a real person with like all these different angles to her and she's really cool and thoughtful and all these things but she's also very very positive so also always when i say really dark depressing things to her at when i say them i i can look into her eyes and i can hear what i sound like in the light of her positivity and I just regret saying it immediately because she asked me, it was my Monday or it was Monday and it was the last day of my work week. And I, I was going to have two days off and she asked me what I was going to do on my two days off. And I go, <laughs> I say, you know, I'm probably just going to sleep for like 20 hours and then I'm going to wake up and I'm going to drink three cups of coffee really, really fast just to feel something, just to feel a little bit caffeinated, just to feel something. And then I'm going to be like, jittery for two hours and then i'm just gonna go back to sleep and it's like such a depressed such a like clinical depression thing to say but it's really that's a thing i've never done in reality but it's a thing that's a reference to that book 
my year of re- uh, my year of rest and relaxation <laughs> by Altessa Mosfe <laughs> because it's what she does in that book. It's a book where that's the only sh- thing she does, and that book is so good, man, because it's so it clearly communicates something to you, and it's escapism. You read it and you're there so powerfully. It so powerfully puts you there where the book is that when you stop reading the book and you come back to your normal life, you feel like, wow, it's so nice homecoming. Stopping, like true escapism is always followed by a feeling of homecoming because you get to come back to your real life because you were taken out of it for a second by that piece of art. And nothing is better escapism than fucking serious drug use but serious drug use is bad for you so we can't do it we shouldn't do it and i don't do it anymore but so i still need escapism so i play a little bit of video games and it's good and sometimes i watch a movie and i find movies to be much better escapism than tv because tv is just like this infinite sort of trolley that doesn't have an up and a down it's just like a long multi-season thing i don't know i've I've been thinking i've always thought a lot about it but i was watching an episode of norm mcdonald has a show because people say norm mcdonald is real funny and i had no idea that he was funny i thought he was boring but then when he died everyone was like he's the funniest so it's a little bit of one of those things where because he died everyone said he's so great so now i've been looking into norm mcdonald a little bit and maybe he was a little bit funny and maybe he did have a little bit of a unique deadpan way of anti-comedy talking about stuff but so he was talking to um maybe drew barrymore and they were talking about the difference between tv and movies and that he had written for tv a lot. And the thing about TV is that the characters are not allowed to change. So he'd written about a, a bunch of episodes for Roseanne, the sitcom Roseanne. And the thing about it is to to write for TV, you have to figure out what the characters are. And then you have to write them exactly the way they are. And they have to start exactly the way they are. And they have to end exactly the way they are. And there must be no change. And that must be true for all the characters. Those are the rules of writing for classic sitcom. And then in a movie, it's the opposite where the character has to change. The character must change. If you write a movie and the characters don't change, you have failed. And if you write a TV episode for Roseanne and the characters change, you have failed. So they're opposites. And then there's something in the new era where Netflix, the way Netflix will will order up three seasons of a show, it's like different. Where there's a new thing in town. Where the, these TV shows now with Netflix are really, what they are is that they are like fucking 16-hour movies. Because they want a story arc the character should change, but they change over fucking nine seasons or whatever, like Breaking Bad, you know? And it's like, I don't, that doesn't work out to be good um, escapism for me. But then also what happened is I watched the Drew Barrymore episode of Norm MacDonald has a show and Drew Barrymore says, that made me, says, 
blah, 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 something made me think of the TV show Trains, Planes, and Automobiles. And then Norm MacDonald responds, that's my favorite movie. And then Drew Barrymore responds, that's my favorite movie too. And then Norm MacDonald says, it's my favorite movie by a lot. And then she goes, yep, it's it's a perfect masterpiece of tone. And I'm like, bro, I haven't even seen this movie. And two people are saying it's their favorite movie. So I just turned the show off and I just put that on and I just watched the movie. And it's a great movie. It is a good movie. Like, sometimes I have such a hard time watching movies from the 80s or 90s or something because they are from an era where our attention span was so different that you put on a movie and the credits and the intro are like three minutes. And I like it's like, dude, I could have watched literally 125 TikToks in the period that you haven't even started the movie. You've just explain to me like who the executive producer is and who did the makeup and who it's starring. And it's like, there's some diffuse footage in the background of like bottles moving from left to right. And then traffic footage and then a sky and birds cawing and flying over the sky. And there's text just panning over the screen of who the, who's going to be in the movie. And you've spent three minutes of my life on this and you haven't even started the movie. And I, I'm just offended. So I just turn it off and I'm like, fuck the 70s, man. Those movies don't work anymore, bro. Because we've been, we've been TikToked, you know? And once you've been TikToked, you can't go back. Once you've spent like six months watching YouTube shorts on your phone every day. You can't go back and you can't watch any movie from the 70s. But so this movie, Transplants and Automobiles, you know what? I'm just going to straight up recommend it to you and not say anything about it and just be like, it's beautiful and it's sad and it's funny, but it's not too funny. And it's just, it just works. It's just a good movie. You know, I'm actually, I actually am super fascinated by what it means to say that something is good. Oh, this is such an abstract, stupid, this is going to be so stupid because this is an unformed thought, but it's an unformed thought I've been having for years of like, when I hear someone say, I fucking love that band. That band is so good. Or I love that movie. That movie is so good. Or I love that TV show. That TV show is so good. When I, when I hear that, for some reason, I have this negative reaction where I'm like, I don't think I will think that. When people use too vague of an adjective to describe why something is good, I assume that the thing is going to suck and that I hate them. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think I have to stop talking about it there because the thought is so unformed that I don't actually know beyond. I can't puncture through that layer of understanding what I'm saying. I don't know how to understand what I'm saying. Like, there's something there where people say, it's almost like, as I'm thinking about it now, it's almost like if you don't know how to use real specific adjective to, adjectives to describe to describe why or how the movie is good, then I assume that you are so shallow and you your badness of communicating... <laughs> oh, God. Your badness of communicating and making me think you're stupid and if you're stupid, the thing you like must be stupid too, so I'm going to not like it. Yeah. 
And I think we have to move on from it right there. Let's drink another water. So this next one here, we're doing tropical tropical stuff. We go from mango to acai, sparkling ice, super fruit. All of these are immunity. Yeah, what is the flight here? I don't know. There's something vaguely related between these waters. They all this one contains antioxidants. Oh, they, this one says immunity support on it too. Yeah, this is an immunity flight. These are good for you. And then spoiler alert, they're not. Let's just say nothing on this podcast, none of these statements have been reviewed by the FDA. Nothing I just said about trains, planes, and automobiles has been approved by the FDA. Yeah, that smells terrible. I almost want to, for the first time, not even try it. I just, oh, you know what? I might not try it. I'm going to do something totally new, which is that I just smell it and I just say, nah. Yeah, I mean, oh. So the last one, that's like a 5 out of 10. This one, I smell it and I give it 0 out of 10 and I'm not going to taste it. I've never done that before. I feel really weird about it. 400 waters in. This is my first review where I don't taste it with my mouth. I only smell it. But <laughs> sparkling ice, they suck. Sparkling ice, super fruit, blueberry acai. Immunity support. That's a zero out of 10. So, um, yeah. You know, I've been, for many episodes now, I've been mentioning, I've been like sort of rehashing and retreading this like um, a, a debate that, people are having now about AI because AI is really having a moment, but it's also not a moment because it's just going to be a thing now going forward. And then I have this strong techno-optimist instinct about it. And it isn't, I'm not strawmanning here because there are techno-pessimists and they are my friends and they post on social media like, I have friends who paint and make art and they post on social media about how much they hate that there are these AI bots that will just create art and it's undermining, like, human art. And I've been thinking about how mad that makes me. And I think on one level, so I've already talked about this and I've talked about how if, how I find them to be, how it's just a tool. First of all, it's really silly to painted as if it's like not like AI art is also made by humans like humans made the AI like we're really not dealing with a non-human consciousness here that's creating this art it's really just like a tool that's you know looking at a trillion billion pieces of already made art and looking at it smartly and then re compositing and creating from scratch things based on having looked at a trillion million pieces of art. So it's really just like more human. Like it's just making more human stuff. It's not that it's not human. That's like the first thing that I find to be such a boring take. But then the the other thing about it, it's like, I think I'm offended because I, and I did it today, I do it frequently. I go, I and my favorite one is mid-journey. I have these experiences where I go and I just talk to the mid-journey computer and I make it give me pictures. 
<clears throat> and it's so thrilling. And it's so mysterious. It's so mystical. It's like one of the most magical experiences I have had in a sober state. Going and talking directly to the computer and having it make pictures for you. It's like one of the weirdest experiences. And when you, it starts out shitty where they're like, they're like blurry and ugly and they're not interesting to you. So it takes, you gotta keep working on it for a bit and add words and think of something that you think is beautiful or go into them. It's so strange, the whole setup, how it's like, Mid-journey, it's set up in a Discord, which is basically like a chat room where you can see what everyone else is saying to the computer and the images that the computer is spitting out to them. So you see you're, you're, it, the whole thing is like constantly scrolling because everyone else's pictures are showing up and pushing your pictures up. You can do it in a, in a private one-on-one thing with the computer but that's what very few people do and it's like hidden away and i do it sometimes because it's so fucking noisy to do in the to do the thing in the general chat but that's what most people do and it's such a weird mysterious like it's as if all your art that you make is made like it's as if you're making music in the studio and there's like 50 other artists in the studio at the same time and for every second that you're quiet someone else is singing and screaming and and playing an instrument and it's like such a noisy incredibly collective but not a cooperative uh, creative experience but it is collective and cooperative because you are looking at all of their shit and a lot of their shit it's like super specific and weird and useless to you where someone is trying to, for some reason, someone is trying to come up with a really boring page of like, uh, a, a lo- like a, like a, like a parka catalog, like a catalog selling jackets. Someone is trying to get the computer to come up with a page in a catalog selling jackets, but not like a vintage cool one, just like a 2005 uh, mail, like just spam mail you get in your fucking physical mailbox selling you jackets. Someone is trying to do that. Like, why are you trying to get the computer to give you a picture of what that would look like? That's boring. And then the next one after that, it's some mind-blowingly beautiful, like vintage sort of Victorian or 1920s lady with a lot of cleavage and her nipples are kind of showing like cool lady of the night oil painted cityscape and so you're looking at everyone else's pictures and you're trying to make some pictures and in the beginning your pictures come out really boring but then you see how everyone else has like 30 words in their request to the computer like you start out being like, okay, so give me some neon soap bubbles mixed with like dusty radishes that fall from like a beautiful sunset sky. And then you realize how everyone else has added in these cool words like photorealistic, cinematic, uh, smoky, backlit. And you can just throw in those words. And what you get is like these incredibly beautiful like, it's just so beautiful and mysterious, the experience of talking directly to the computer. And then when I go on Facebook and I have these f- friends who like to paint, and it's, look, like, I don't want to be this hater, but it's like, 
And I say this as a content creator. Like I say this as like I'm making a podcast in this very moment. I'm making a podcast. And in this very moment, I am aware that 15 years from now, they might have an AI that will just make better podcasts than I do. And I say this as someone who's like made imagery and made sound and the written word and try to make beautiful things with the written word. And in all of these different mediums that I've worked on, I am just aware and I think I am at peace with the fact that the computer will just be better than me at it all. And I think that the reason it's easy for me to be at peace with it is because I, I've been so unsuccessful. Like I haven't been successful with any of it. You know, I've had these small pieces of success where like I make this podcast and enough people listen to it and I feel really good about it. And if I go on Patreon, there's like 200 bucks on there that people have donated to my podcast that I can withdraw at any point. And I never withdraw it because I just like the idea of having it in there as a sort of like, when I feel like I'm a complete piece of shit and no one can ever like me, it's like... I, once a year, I log into Patreon. I feel like that a lot. But once a year, I have the idea that maybe I could make myself feel better by just logging into Patreon and looking at how many um, patrons, I guess it's the word, how many patrons I've had that have <clears throat> um, subscribed is maybe what, what it's called. They subscribe to my Patreon. Is that how you say it? Anyway, they like are my patrons on there and they give me money. And just the psychological idea of that they do that is so cute and so positive that there's so, there's enough positivity that I'm not going to completely disappear in despair. But But I recognize that I'm not like meaningfully successful in any of these things. So because I am just old enough now that I'm okay with not having been really meaningfully successful in any of these ventures. And there's really a lot of ventures. I just did a, <clears throat> I just sort of revamped my website in this sort of grown up way where I just organized every, a lot of things I've made and just put them on, under different headers. And I just sort of like parked everything there. And there's something so peaceful about just making something and then just parking it somewhere and then just being okay with it being there. Like my book is just parked on my website and it's okay. It doesn't need to be anywhere else. It can just be parked there. Um, but what was I going to say? There's something like, like I, 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 I don't want to sound like an asshole, but I have friends on Facebook that paint. And then they are offended that now we can ask the computer to paint for us. And it undermines the work of humans. And then I look at the images that the computer make for me. And then I look at the paintings that my friends have painted and put on Facebook. And the like the level of like the difference in how cool they are, like the computer made <laughs> the computer made images are like infinitely cooler than the stupid, meaningless shit that it doesn't connect with anyone. Like there's so much bad art made by human beings, and there's so much fucking human hubris. And humans, there's so much, I've been to so many bad art shows where thing, humans think they have a point and they absolutely don't have a point. 
they both don't have a point in their thought work of the thought behind it, and they both don't, and they also don't have any talent in the actual skill of making something beautiful on a on a superficial level. Like the, it's both superficially bad and beyond the superficial. The thought behind the superficial is also bad. Like I've been to so many bad art shows that I am at this point so offended by artists that are offended by the computer that I just want to like have them shut the fuck up <laughs> because it's like bro what you're really saying when you say we shouldn't make this computer art and this computer art is an abomination what you're really saying also though is that you don't want me to have these thrilling incredible like rich just mind-boggling like it's like you're falling through your own mind here speaking to the computer and making the computer make you images like you're you're having these big experiences and when you tell me that you want me to not have those experiences you want to take my beautiful experiences away from me and you want a monopoly on your stupid fucking pencil drawings in a pad that you take pictures of and put on Facebook and then come up with these complicated captions for. Like, you want a monopoly on fucking pencil drawings, bro? And you don't want me to have these, like, incredibly weird computer-generated AI art? Like, And then, you know, sidebar here. I think one of the reasons why it's so... um why it's so enjoyable to talk to the computer right now is that right at this very moment, and this will not be true probably three years from now, but at this moment, it the way it works is that there's like a lag that's very similar to, you know, like how, how on Facebook, the way um, it's so overstated how like, Facebook is poison and they used psychology to poison us and they brought in all these psychologists to figure out like, oh, how can we really get them hooked? And one of the very few, like there's so few, there are very few ideas there really. It's really like four or five ideas. Like all the entire poison pill of fo- of uh, of Facebook is like only four or five medium good ideas. Like we do it to ourselves and we want to do it to ourselves. Like they're not that, they're not huge geniuses. All it is is that it's an endless scroll that you can scroll forever. And then one of the ideas that Facebook had is that like they want to sort of space out your notifications so that you don't log in and get like 100 notifications and then you get to look at all 100 in one go and then you don't get notifications again for like two days. Like that's not how they want it. They want you to get like a notification every 18 minutes or fucking 90 seconds or I don't know what the number is, but they want it spaced out so that you are always looking for this like new thrill of um, slight dopamine hit. And so very similar to that, the way that the prompt craft of AI-generated art right now when you go on there and you write a prompt, you craft a prompt, you write 30 words, a string of words for like an idea you have for an image and you want to give the computer an idea and you have you give the computer 30 words. 
Then you press enter, and then you have to wait. <laughs> and you have to wait like this very interesting amount of time because it's something, it, 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 it depends on how busy the computer is. And I don't think that they're doing it on purpose and slowing it down on purpose to hook you, but it hooks you because it takes 20 seconds. And then you can turn on the sound so that you don't have to sit there and just stare at the number. It, it'll, it'll tick up and be like 5% done, 10% done, 20% done. And you can literally see the image coming into focus. And all images start with like just a few pixels. And it's blurry and it's just a couple of blobs. And everything like morphs and vexes into focus in this incredibly magical way. Like I think so much about how... I mean, I mean, and not just me, everyone, we think like when you watch sci-fi and when you watch stuff like time travel or going through a wormhole or all these things, there's like a way when they make movies, they have to like make choices visually for how to depict that. And it's so interesting to think about what will it like going the speed of light or going like very, very fast or all of these different weird scientific um concepts that like you have to depict visually like what do they look like and and everyone come people i love sci-fi because they come up with these weird new ways of depicting it visually and then this shit is so unpredictable and it's so like hard to like if i was asked to come up with it i couldn't have guessed that this is how it's gonna go but so it like you ask the computer for a thing for for an image and then you press enter and then it morphs into focus and it takes like 25 seconds or 45 seconds and then it does a ding so you don't have to sit there and wait but you can sit there and wait but like the wait is also why the whole thing is so incredible like i think three years from now when it's instantaneous we will get bored with it faster like we will be we will very soon live in a world where we'll take all of this for granted and it's really going to revolutionize the like what made up visual like it is going to really change things because we will be we have access to new stuff like the incredibly slow iterative process of needing an image for an ad and asking an artist for it and then not liking it and asking the artist for a second iteration and then not liking it and asking the artist for a third iteration and then you sort of like it and then asking him for a fourth iteration and then you get the thing that you end up using. That four-week process that you can now do 10,000 times in one day, like 10,000 times in one day is silly because like you, you don't, you, you're not going to sit there with your brain and make... To go through 10,000 drafts because you're going to get create, you're going to end up with some sort of creative fatigue. And you do end up with a weird new type of fatigue when you sit with it for a long time. And when you ask the computer for a lot of images, you do end up with this like completely new form of fatigue where you, it's like a beauty fatigue where you have something that you think is beautiful. So you ask the computer for more and more and more of that thing that you think is beautiful. Whatever it is to you. And then you end up with so much of it that you just get fatigued and you're like, nothing is beautiful to me anymore. And then you stand up and you do something else. 
And it's like a completely new feeling, man. I mean, it, it's the only thing that's a little bit similar to it is the sort of information version of it that the internet gave us when, when we could Google things and get hits on whatever we Google. You know, that vastness, the, in, the infinity and vastness of that is similar, but, but really it's, um, really it's new. Anyway, let's drink another water. Third water here. So pomelo sparkling water. Everyone knows pomelo is my favorite thing. Pomelo is my favorite fruit. Layback is the name of the brand. Pomelo sparkling water, 20 milligrams of CBD. Oh, I see what you did there. You went, oh, it's like a smoky pomelo. Oh, you didn't go clean juice. You went, you went dirty. Okay. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's good because I love pomelo. It's not an incredible depiction of pomelo, but I love pomelo enough that I love this. And it's like good enough, but wow. Wow, it's not every day you get to try pomelo. That's a six out of 10. That's a six out of 10. It's quite earthy. Yep. You know what I always say when there's CBD involved, tastes a little bit like bong water, and that's true. Anyway, I think... I've thought about it, and the reason I'm so offended by artists hating on AI-created art is because I've had such beautiful moments with it, and when they say that, it's as if they want to take my beautiful moments away. Because the truth is that most people don't have a very living relationship with art. Most people don't go to art galleries and look at paintings and have deep emotional experiences triggered by looking at the oil on canvas in a room, you know, in a place that you had to drive to. You know, the woman I was married to, she had these, she studied art history and she got a master in art. Like so many people study art history and then they very quickly realize or they realize exactly halfway through their degree that the degree is a bad idea. Like that it's kind of fun to look at art but and be pretentious, but the degree is a bad idea. But they're 51% into it when they realize that, so they finish the degree and then they end up being baristas, right? But she went so hard and she had a rich dad so she could just keep going and she got an art history degree and she just stayed in it and works for an auction house and all that stuff. But she had these experiences where, and it's very related to mental health, where like there was a rawness to her mental health and a sensitivity HSP, highly sensitive person. There's a sensitivity to her and a fullness in how she felt everything where like she would look at Mark Rothko paintings. And if you know what Mark Rothko paintings look like, this is hilarious. She would look at Mark Rothko paintings and and cry her eyes out. And that's a little bit, you can, you, there's many ways to look at that. And one of them is to laugh because it's funny because a Mark Rothko painting is like, a black background with a with a rounded edge red rectangle on it and that's it now look i actually really care for mark rothko paintings and i think they're really beautiful and i think geometry and i think just oil can be really beautiful and i think they are really beautiful and um my personal favorite though ooh what's the name of that guy ooh i have to look this up because 
It's my version of it. Hold on. Okay, his name is Ellsworth Kelly. And he's an abstract painter. That's the word used for it. I think it's... Yeah, sure, you can use that word. Um, <clears throat> and he paints these blobs. And for some reason, there's one specific blob that I saw on an album, music album. I don't remember what the music album was called. But anyway, the point, the, the thing about it is just that it's like, it's a music album where it's a white square with a black blob on it. And it's just like a single color black blob that covers almost the entire cover. And the words of the album are just crammed at the very, very top and they barely fit because the blob takes up the entire front. And there's something about the shape of the blob that I find so incredibly beautiful. And I look at it and I thought that the graphic designer had come up with some magical, incredible blob shape. And I was just like struck by it. And I was like, this is such an incredibly beautiful cover. And I was trying to Google, who's the graphic designer who came up with this? And then, out of a weirdest fucking um, coincidence, but not a coincidence at all, I was looking at different book covers for a font and a book cover design that I liked. And then I landed on the 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 new editions of Tuve Ditlevsen is a Norwegian uh, author who um, wrote this trilogy. I think it's actually nonfiction. It's about her life. It's something about being a woman and something. But there's like a Korean-American woman who designed the covers for the new editions of her American books. And I loved the Roboto weird font. Prophet is the name of the font of those books, the new editions of Tuve Ditlevsen's novels in America. And then, so I'm, you, I'm, I spent like a week trying to design a, a, a cover for my own novel using ideas from the Tuve Ditlevsen novel covers by Nakim, this uh, Korean-American uh, graphic designer. And I couldn't do it. I spent a week on it and it didn't come together. It didn't work for my thing. You know, it just, it, it was a font that worked way better with a single word title. And my, the title of my book is like too many words and it didn't work, blah, blah, blah. The point is that after having been so struck by this Korean American woman graphic designer's font choice on one book, a few weeks later, I see her on her Instagram that she has made a book cover and it's the same blob that I had seen on the jazz album cover that I found so incredibly evocative. And I realized in that moment that it wasn't that the blob was just made up by the graphic designer. The blob is actually a painting by Ellsworth Kelly, by an abstraction abstractionist American painter. So the blob is like this famously beautiful shape. It's so strange to me that we agree on like when I look at it I what what I when I look at it I think wow that is so beautiful to me and I feel lonely because I'm sure no one else thinks that's beautiful cuz it's such a weird thing to think is beautiful. So if you want to see what the blob looks like you can google there's a novel called Pure Color the front of the novel is just, it says, pure cover, a novel, Sheila Hetty. Because Sheila Hetty, last name Hetty, 
H-E-T-I. That's the name of the author. The novel is called Pure Color. And the novel is the same blob, but now it's green, not black. And the same graphic design idea where the blob just takes up the entire front of the book. And the the words are just crammed at the top and the bottom next to the blob. And there's just something so... I don't know why I find it so, like, grippingly beautiful. But I think it's similar to what my ex-wife felt when she looked at Mark Rothko. Nah, I don't think that's true. But it's similar in just, like... It's an incredibly simple visual thing that we find incredibly evocative for some reason. And it's just very mysterious. Like, why do I find it so beautiful? I find it so beautiful, and I thought it was such an unknown shape that I even tried to steal the shape. And and uh, I've tried to steal it many times, actually. I've tried to incorporate it in graphic design for myself many times. I tried to put it on my novel. I tried to give... Doug a fucking t-shirt for Christmas that was going to be a mock-up of a fucking company he could have had. And I was going to incorporate the blob. But it's like just, I don't know. It's so funny and mysterious to me that I find it so beautiful. But um, but I find it so... So then you can say about that, that like, okay, so maybe the the computer couldn't invent the blob that's so beautiful to us people because it's too specific and rare and weird and it's not like a weird composite it's just like this one thing but it's also kind of true that a human couldn't invent it because the only way we can invent it is to just he invented it by painting a million blobs and then there was one where he looked at it and he was just like wow there's something about this one and he showed it to someone and someone at some point was like you know what that shape of blob does something to me too. I, I feel something when I look at that blob. And then it gets put in an art gallery and it gets taken out of all art galleries and it gets worked into graphic design because really the relationship between art galleries and graphic design is the same as the relationship between runway fashion and fast fashion hanging on the rack in H&M where like ideas spring from this high-level thing that has this tiny audience. The art galleries have a tiny audience, but the stuff that's really good in the art, art galleries, art galleries exist, like, outside of the economy. Like, shit doesn't... That's not a very liquid market where things get bought and sold in a meaningful way where, like, the stuff that gets bought is the most beautiful stuff. It's just not... It doesn't work very well in the art gallery. It's too illiquid. But the stuff that's really good gets plucked out of the art gallery and worked into graphic design, and it gets worked into capitalism writ large. So, like, if you make something good enough... Like, if it's amazing enough and it's in an art gallery, it's going to be plucked out of there, and it's going to end up in a movie somewhere, you know? Kehinde Wiley, you're going to you're going to end up somewhere else. The art gallery is never the... It, it's it's not the end point. It's the start point of good art. Art galleries is where bad art goes to die. Like, if, if the art gallery is the dead end for you, if you make art and you make it into a gallery and that's all you do, and you think you succeeded because you made it into the art gallery, then you've misunderstood everything. But I'm looking at it right now on my computer, this blob on the color, on the, on the um, novel, 
Pure Color, a novel by Sheila Hetty. God damn it, it's so strange how beautiful I find it. And also, here's the other thing that's so mysterious. I have some, there's something about taste where I like the taste of this Korean-American woman who picked a font that I just, out of all that, like I spent weeks looking for a font and I just found this font to be so incredible that she picked for the Tuva Ditlevsen books. And there's something, and it's a very simple font. Like it does not remind you of a blob at all. It's like a very simple font that has these like cut off edges. Like the O is a circle, but then you just, it's like they, it's like cut off, like slices are cut off of each letter. Like the corners are cut off in a random way that just gives it this weirdly dissected, cut up look that's strange and geometric. And there was something that spoke to me in that. And then somehow randomly, weeks later, she made a different aesthetic choice and picked a blob. And it was, the, it was like my favorite blob again. And so like, I am her fan. Like, I'm not saying, I almost said, I have this connection with this Korean American woman. And I think that's giving me too much credit. But I just think I have this incredibly... Like, I, I have this incredibly specific thing that I like that is exactly what she makes. So even though she makes completely different, like, she makes all these different things, but I get super excited about them. I don't know. It's a very, ah, uh, I feel like I'm self-aggrandizing somehow talking about this, like, as if I'm special here. But I'm just a consumer. I just find it so weird that we can have these, that we can like something so specific made by a very specific person that we've never met. And then they make a new, very specific choice. And then that becomes your favorite thing again, you know? Like, what does it mean that Billie Eilish made that album? What, what, where do we go when we fall asleep or whatever that first album was called? And we all thought it was our favorite album. And then she made a new album and it was even better. <laughs> and we all thought it was better. Like, what is aesthetics? Like, what does that mean? How can Billie Eilish be so good at everything? I don't know, dude. I've been doing a lot of graphic design work in the last few months, just um, recreate recreation as a form of recreation, just because I like it. And it's a, it's a, it's an exercise for me where I do something that I enjoy because it's a little bit creative and it's a little bit visual, and I like cut and paste things together that I find beautiful, and I pick fonts, and I pick words that I find beautiful, and I just sort of like put things together that I find beautiful. And then the exercise with it is that I have my whole life done little creative things, but when I do them, I don't enjoy doing it because I I tense up. The creative process makes me tense up, and then so if I actually pause at any moment during the creative process and think, hey, how do I actually feel right now? The answer is always, I feel terrible because I'm so tense. And so what I've been doing in the last few months is I've been deliberately just saying, hey, I'm going to give myself this task of doing this creative work just so I can practice doing it in a way that's relaxed. And it's like, this very meditation-supported new thing where I sit in front of my computer in Photoshop and I just relax. I relax and I go to fonts and I just 
toggle through all the fonts and I just try to relax and I just let beauty strike me and I just pick a font that I like. And then I get a little bit excited and I want to tense up and I get excited because I have the sense of fear where I feel like, for some reason, I feel like I'm about to strike something beautiful and it will be the only time in my life that I, would, that I will strike something beautiful. And every part of that is wrong. There's nothing about this moment that will be the only time I do it in my life. And there's nothing special about this moment that will be worth anything more than any other moment to anyone. It's just more life. You know? Drake named an album More Life. And I really I wonder if he's a great philosopher or a complete idiot. Like, is he a great Buddhist and when he names this album More Life, it's a meditation exercise on how everything is just more life? Or is he a complete idiot? And I'm convinced that he's a complete idiot. But I could be wrong. And so the last three months I've been sitting with stuff. I made it. I made up this task for myself where I was like, for Christmas, for a Christmas gift, I'm going to give all the managers at Holbrook. There are seven other managers. There are uh, there's a head chef and there are two sous chefs and there's a hotel manager and there's an event manager and there's a GM of the whole hotel and there's one other restaurant manager and that makes seven other people and me. And I made this task for myself where I was going to make, I was going to be like, if you had a comp, if you worked somewhere else and you didn't work here and you had a company, what would you, what would that company be? And I'm going to make a logo for that company. I'm going to put it on a on a sweater or a coffee cup or a t-shirt and I'm going to make merch for your imaginary other company. And so I took these people and some of them I know really well and some of them I know less well, but I know quite all of them quite well because we've worked together for a year and a half. And I made merch, I made seven logos basically for these seven people and as I was making them I was trying to relax and go through the fonts and make something beautiful. And then I thought I did these funny things and it turned into a really weird gift. It turned into really weird gifts where it's really inexplicable. Like it's really, it's really like they get given a gift and they take it out of the box and they look at it and they're like, what is this? And I don't know how to explain it. Like I just explained it to you, but I didn't know how to explain it in the moment. And I accidentally gave inexplicable things. Like I gave Amanda a t-shirt. Like what is that called, the t-shirt? Like a white t a long sleeve shirt that has a white, that has green sleeves and a white uh, shirt middle part. Like what is that? That's like a style of shirt that should have a name. Anyway, I give her a shirt like that and there's a logo on it and it says Anderson Creamery and it's got this big ice cream cone on it. And it's like stylized and it's a, it's a, I just stole it from a different ice cream shop. But I edited it a bunch and added in a bunch of Amanda words on it and stuff. And it, and it looks real good because someone else made it look real good and I just stole it. But, but it, so she takes this out of a box and she's like, what is this? You know? And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're welcome. And I felt so weird. Like I, I had this idea and I thought it was a good idea. And then when I actually gave it to people, I realized I for a moment I saw myself from the outside and I was like I'm I'm too weird. Like I should be a little bit more normal. I should try to be a little bit more normal. And um yeah, it reminds me of how 
We hired this new bartender. Her name is Chloe. And then my buddy Maddie, Maddie, she works at Circle. And then Chloe's husband, his name is Joe Gillespie. And he's like this bartender that everyone around town loves. Like, like he's such a good bartender that when I told London that, hey, I, I got this girl. Her name is Chloe. She's Joe Gillespie's wife. I want to train her to be a bartender. And London was like, she's Joe Gillespie's wife. She's hired. That's how much people love Joe Gillespie. But then apparently I've never met Joe Gillespie, but I've seen him from across the room. And then like apparently he and Maddie, they work together at Circle because he has a day job doing marketing over there. And he, they had a conversation about me and he was like, yeah, so apparently Joe Kim is an eccentric like this guy I've never met had heard of me that I was an eccentric. And it made me seem for just a flash, I saw myself from the outside and it didn't make me feel good. It made me feel like I should try to be a little bit more normal. It may, I, I don't know. And now in this moment, for some reason, I'm reminded of this, this meme I saw on the internet. And then sometimes, you know, when you see memes, you just like them. So you right click and you press save ass and you save it to your computer. And I don't remember when I did it, but for some reason, there's a picture on my desktop on my computer, which is a raccoon walking on a sandy beach, walking into the water. And there's a poorly designed caption. And the words are, I may be cringe, but at least I'm free. (laughs) And it's a raccoon. It's so good. (laughs) And there's like a sunset. It's like a raccoon walking into the water into a sunset. It's a big fat raccoon. It's it's a photo of a raccoon on a beach. Like, what is a raccoon doing on a beach? Dude, raccoons are so crazy, dude. Because they're like peaceful, but disgusting. I don't, like we don't have raccoons in Sweden and I'm trying to figure out a relationship with raccoons. Like how scared should I be? Is it going to bite me? It seems like s- Americans are, feed them sometimes. And sometimes think that they are cute. And sometimes you look in a dumpster and there are 35 raccoons in the dumpster. And you just say out loud to yourself, how are there so many of you in here? You know, I'm trying to figure out a relationship between myself and raccoons. Okay, so there's one last thing I want to talk about on the podcast. Was that it? Was I Had I said everything about that? I think so. The one last thing I want to say on the podcast here is like, this is again, now I'm back to talking about work. And the last six weeks, I've been a host. And so I've been talking just about fucking experiences you have when you're a host and you're the door person, turning people away and letting people in and all this shit. And so there's this fella in town. And I don't know anything bad that he's done, but I've heard many, many women say that he's a creep. He's a creepy guy. And he's a well-known creepy guy. And I I really kind of dislike that phrase because it's so vague. And I think it's a useful phrase between women. Women, When one woman says to another woman that that guy's creepy, it communicates something useful so that the woman who hears it knows to be careful in a certain way. But I think the word fails because when men hear it, they don't, it doesn't translate. Like they don't understand it. They don't do, they don't hear it properly 
for them, they just feel like, uh, they, men, the male reaction is dismissiveness. When you hear that a man is creepy, the average male reaction is like, you're dismissive and you're like, okay, so, so maybe I don't, maybe I don't love that guy. But so here's the thing. There's a fella around town and I've heard him, heard that people say he's creepy. And then there was this one night, this is a long time ago. This is probably a month ago. And, but it stuck with me. He, we were completely booked. Like we had 250 people coming in that had made reservations and the bartenders are slammed. So in that situation, I don't let any walk-ins in because if their walk-ins show up, it's not that we don't have chairs for them. And they're like, no, but I'll just stand. And I'm like, I don't have space for you. And they're like, I'll just stand in the corner. It's fine. I just want a drink. The issue is that my bartenders don't have bandwidth to make drinks for 250 people and you. Like the 250 people is already a little bit too much. So people are already going to wait for drinks a little bit too long. So I have to turn you away. So I turn everyone away. And then that's very hard to explain to people because people – and this it's the same when it comes to food and everything and hosting and, and tables and having dinner in the restaurant. Like people have a really hard time conceptualizing that if they see an available table, they don't understand why they can't just sit down and have dinner. Because they think that the um, scarce resource is physical tables. But there are many, many things that we can be low on. You know, we can be low on the person cleaning up. We can be low on the person making drinks. We can be low on bandwidth in making the food. We can be low on actual physical tables. We can be low on just someone taking your order. There's like 10 different things we can be low on, and we need to have enough of everything to be able to get you a table. But so anyway, so it's a night when we're full and I'm turning everyone away, and then this one fella shows up. Now, he looks like a character from Mumin. The uh, Finnish cartoon. He looks like the character from Moomin who shows up once a year and is like a nomad character. What's the name of that character? Snufkin is a philosophical vagabond who wanders the world fishing and playing the harmonica. He carries everything he needs in his backpack and he believes that having too much stuff makes life overly complicated. When I Googled it, I did not realize how much of a philosophical underpinning this character had. In Swedish, he's called Snusmumriken. And in Finnish, which is arguably the original language, he's called Snuskamuikunen because Finnish is in a, a very long and complicated and weird language. Finnish is one of the weirdest languages in the whole world. Snusmumriken is his Swedish name. Snufkin. In English. So there's an old man in town and he looks like Snusmumikin and he's a creep with girls, which is very like it's so confusing and such a break of style and creates so much cognitive dissonance to have someone cosplaying as the most wholesome, minimalist, 1990s socialist, good philosophy cartoon character, like the, literally the best character in the world from a cartoon world, just the most innocent cartoon character in the world and have an old man cosplaying as that and having him be a sexual predator. It's a massive cognitive dissonance, but that's the world we're living in, okay? So there's a fellow like that. And so he shows up and he likes to drink at the bar and just show up and sit at the bar and be alone and he's creepy. 
I don't know what he does, but he's creepy, and I take that seriously. So he shows up, and he just walks in and sits down at a bar stool, and there are four bar stools. He just walks right past the sign that says, please wait to be seated. And then the thing is that there are already like a group of five or six that are sitting on those bar stools, but they're mostly standing around them. But they have like their coats on the bar stools, and they're moving around, and they're dancing, and they're young, and they're doing shots, and they're screaming, and they're partying. And I'm cool with them because they don't, they're not doing anything wrong. They're taking up a lot of physical space, but I have physical standing room space and they're not making trouble. They're a little bit like the guys look like frat boys and the girls look like super hot cheerleader girls. Um, so I don't really like connect with them maybe, but it's all good. They can hang out and... They didn't have a reservation. I let them take a couple of bar stools. They're not drinking so quickly or bothering the bartender so much that it's a problem. And they can be there and everyone else has to be with reservations. So then this old man shows up and he just walks straight in and he just sits down at one of the bar stools that kind of belongs to this group of six. And then I walk up to him and I'm like, I'm sorry, sir, I don't have space for walk-ins today. And he's like, look, I just want to have a drink. And I keep saying different versions of it. Like, look, I, I'm sorry, we don't we don't have space. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And then he gets agitated. And he's like, look, ma'am, just forget about it. Just walk away, bro. Just walk away. And he, he starts saying these really rude, aggressive things. He looks at me and he's like, dude, just forget about it. And... The first thing that happens is that one of the women in the group of six frat boys, cheerleader women, these are, cheerleader is the weird word, but they look like that, but they're probably like 25, you know, years old. Um, one of the women goes, is it just you, sir? Like, are you alone? Because she's going to let him just sit there. Because even though it's kind of their bar stools that they have their stuff on, they didn't have their stuff on that one. And if he's alone, she she was going to be like, you can sit there. And then I look at her and I go... Because at this point, I'm annoyed with how rude he's being with me. So now I'm like, now it's not about finding bandwidth for us to serve him. Now it's like, you're being rude as fuck and I, I don't like you. And then there's the added angle of how he's a creepy guy and a creepy, a guy with a reputation for being creepy. We're always just looking for an excuse to throw him out. So if I'm too busy and I'm not letting walk-ins in, I'm not making an exception for someone who has a reputation to be creepy. So I, I I want this guy out. And this girl is sort of butting in and being like, look, is it just you? Are you alone? Like you I, you can kind of sit there. And then I look at her and I, and I point to her and I say, look, you're being very, very nice right now. And then I look back at the, at the old guy and I go, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And he just very aggressively refuses. So I physically put my hand on his back and I start slowly just pushing him out. And we've had so many, look, I'm the door person. I'm like the bouncer. And I've had so many um, experiences in the last six weeks where there are many, many people that just walk in and we have to kick them out because we fill up too much. And I need tables for people with reservations. And I there's like four different parties where people have just walked in and I'm like, and I have to go up to them and be like, you have to leave. So I deputize people. I delegated. I, I look at whoever staff member is standing next to me and I say, look, you go over to them and tell them that they can't be there. And I'm going to go up to these two and tell them that they can't be here. And I do most of it myself, but I delegate some of it. And then people come back to me and they say, he said no. 
And I'm like, bro, no, it's not an acceptable answer. They have to leave. I need that table for someone with a reservation. Like, no, it's not an acceptable answer. And then people are like, he said no. He's not leaving. And I'm like, they are going to have to leave. So, so many times in the last six weeks, I've, I've... I'm dealing with a drunk person and I can't have them be where they are and they won't move. And I literally just physically put a hand on their shoulder and just slowly shove them out. And then that's a point where people are like, okay, so the Swede is pushing me out and I guess I'm not going to punch him in the face. So I guess I'm getting pushed out. And if you physically push someone out, like I even had Doug, like, I've had so many people fail me in the last six weeks where I'm deputizing them to kick someone out and they just fail to kick them out. And then I end up having to kick everyone out myself because no one else is assertive enough to do it. I've really grown as a person here. Like I've become so much more assertive. And then one of the assertivenesses is about, I talked about this last week of how I, some guy offered me 300 bucks to let him in and I did, and I didn't take the 300 bucks, even though I kind of need 300 bucks. I don't need 300 bucks, but I desire 300 bucks. <laughs> so stupid. So, and then I was thinking about how, how imprisoned I am that I can't accept 300 bucks. One of the things about being assertive of how I'm learning how to be assertive is that once you've drawn a red line, line in the sand, you have to just do, like, that's the line. Now we have committed to that. So now even if you offer me 300 bucks, I have drawn a line in the sand and we're not crossing that line. And I've actually worked on it. And this one lady actually gave me a little bit of money once to let her in. And I was like, I was reminded of what I had said on the podcast about how I, if I can let someone in and I need to be making exceptions for someone, if someone offers me money and I desire money, Maybe I need to not be imprisoned, like maybe ultimate freedom. Maybe I need both power and freedom and power, the power to be assertive and kick people out and the freedom to accept bribes. (laughs) Like maybe the person I want to be is extremely powerful and extremely free. And what that means here is that I want to kick you out if I want to kick you out and I want to take your bribe if I want to take your bribe. And I'm growing to become that person. So, uh... Anyway, I've kicked a lot of people out where physically I have to shove them out. And so we get to this guy, this guy who looks like Snooze Moomlikin, and he's a creep. And the girl is saying he can sit on the bar stool if he's just alone. Like, they, they have enough space. And then I look at her and I say, you're being very nice, but I'm sorry, this is not going to work. And then I look at the fella and I say, you have to move. And then I physically start shoving him out. And he say, he says a lot. He's like, I'm here all the time. And he, he's, he, he looks at me and he screams. He's like, get lost. And I'm like, look, sir, you're being super abrasive here. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And then I shove him out. I just shove him out the door. And then London is there and he knows that London's the big boss and London knows that he's a creep and London saw me deal with him. And I wasn't sure how it was looking from the outside. If I was looking too aggro when I'm like, literally have, I have a hand on the small of his back, literally pushing him out. But, but apparently London me reconvened later and she was like, yeah, yeah, I really liked how you did that. (laughs) And I was like, phew, okay. That uh, we were, because it's such, you need such fingerspitzengefühl with being assertive, but also being hospitable. It's such, it takes such precision. It's like surgery, bro. 
But so apparently when he was leaving, he looked at London and he was like, he wanted to talk to her about it and be like, look, this guy is not letting me. And London apparently just looked at him and said, goodbye and walked away, which I'm like, ah. Oh. In my mind, I'm like, I actually think I might be better than London at this shit because I really, <laughs> first of all, I'll flirt with any woman. <laughs> God. God. Okay. Never mind. I'll scratch that from the record. But anyway, so I kicked this guy out. And then um, the girl, I, I, I felt a little bit bad because the group of six, the three cheerleaders and the three, you know, football jock looking guys, they, um, I was doing, it was really in their space. And I got into a little bit of an altercation with the old man in their space. And I was a little bit feeling like I wasn't sure how it looked like from their end. So then an hour, I, the whole time I was like thinking about going up there and just being like, I'm sorry that that was so weird and abrasive, but I had to ask him to leave for my own reasons. And then... I didn't go up to them. And then when they were leaving, I saw the girl who had been like, hey, he can, if he, is, are you alone, sir? Like, are you just, is there just one of y'all? You can, you can sit here. Um, the girl that had been nice, that I had communicated a little bit, but she was putting her coat on. So I walk up to her and I, I was feeling a little bit, I was feeling a lot of different things. I was like, she had this aura to her of being super hot in a way where like, sometimes when you go up to a girl that like that, I don't know. I just imagine that their immediate reaction is going to be that they're super bothered and they assume that you're like going to try to flirt with them or something, which is probably a really stupid thing to think because that's probably it's probably what a lot of people think. And it's probably something that makes it so that they have fewer normal human reactions or interactions where really it's probably just nice to just have a nice conversation with someone who looks unapproachably hot. But so I go up to this girl who's unapproachably hot and I just I just say like, uh, look, I just want to apologize for that fella earlier and like there's like I, I – we couldn't serve him in here and there are certain reasons. And then she looked at me and started explaining how she understood that there was a thing going on in a way that I didn't even understand that I was communicating that. And it, this – interaction we had was one of the most like this is one of the most interesting micro interactions I've ever had because it was a window into something like um, nudges and winks and secret interaction that women have with each other that men are completely unaware of that I was accidentally a part of because there was something about how I said to her look you're being really nice but I can't serve this fella right here there was something about how I said that that made her realize that he was a creep so she's like oh yeah I realized that he was a creep and then or some she said something that made me say oh yeah you know like he's he has this history of being really creepy with young women who work here. So I didn't want him in here. So I had to ask him to leave. And I'm sorry that was in front of you guys. And I'm sorry it got really like altercation-y and really sort of like, I'm sorry we're in your space or yelling at each other, but like I couldn't serve him and I'm I'm sorry. And she started apologizing, like not apologizing to me, but but we were sort of commiserating. And she... It was so fucking fascinating to me to realize that she had understood why I was kicking him out. 
Because to me, he looks so wholesome. He looks like Snooze Moon Weekend. And he just looks like a wise old man. But to women, when women see someone who looks like a wise old man, they are much more ready to believe that just because he looks like a wise old man doesn't mean that he might not also be kind of handsy, you know? He might grab you by the pussy, you know? And he might say something fucking horrible that makes you super uncomfortable. And it's like, and it made me so sad. I don't know. I mean, it's a sad, it, it's just, you know, women, saying that it makes me sad. I, I say things like that, that that makes me sad. And then women, women's reaction is always like, like, that's not, we are not sad about it. It's just reality. Like women are so much more jaded to it. But when you're a man and you don't know how like, just gross the world is and how uncomfortable people make you all the time. Like men don't realize how often women are uncomfortable. So when we see it for a second, it's like, it's, it makes us so sad because it's such a new idea to us. Um, but there was something I, for somehow her and me had a secret communication thing where I, nudged i gave her the secret nudge that stop stop saying that this guy can stop what you're doing where you're saying that this guy can be here because this guy is a piece of shit and he's a creep like somehow i communicated that to her almost unknowingly and then she talked to me about it and was like thank you for giving me that wink that made it super clear that he was a creep and it's like yeah, mind-boggling. It's a mind-boggling interaction that's probably a very common interaction interaction for women. Anyway, that was just something I thought was really fascinating. It happened like a month ago, but it really stayed with me just how fucking interesting that was because it made me realize that women probably have those interactions all the time where they like walk through a room and you leave and some woman is entering and as you pass each other, there's just something where, where you communicate, the person leaving communicates to the person arriving that just so you know, that guy is a piece of shit and look out for him, you know? And I think there's a lot of secret communication like that going on in the world that men are completely unaware of. Anyway, um, that is the end of the episode. That's the end of the episode. Two hours. Thank you for listening and I and I love you. <laughs>